anybody that works in finance, you need, you have to take a look at crypto. I often say is, you may not like it, you may love Bitcoin, you may hate it, but I think that this intellectual moral obligation to at least spend the time to understand it. You're listening to Crypto Savvy, the show that demystifies digital assets and uncovers all things cryptocurrency. Brought to you by the Hashkey Group, a leader in financial technology and digital asset management. Crypto Savvy, the essentials. My guest today is Henry Arslanian. Henry is PricewaterhouseCoopers Global Crypto Leader. Based in Hong Kong, he advises many of the world's leading crypto exchanges, investors, financial institutions, and tech firms on their fintech and crypto initiative. He also works with numerous government, regulators, and central banks on fintech and crypto regulatory and policy matters. Henry is a key influencer in the digital asset space. He is regularly featured in prominent media outlets, including Bloomberg, The Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal. With more than 500,000 LinkedIn followers, Henry was recently named by Analytica as the number one most influential individual on finance. Henry, welcome to Crypto Savvy Podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Henry, I always start these conversations with a bit of a hero's journey. And with yours, it it goes back in time. I mean, you are addicted to education. You've had a few mainstream finance roles. Uh, Tell us what what first brought you to the crypto industry. Well, thanks, Walter. Thanks for having me on the show. Very happy to be here. Uh, Absolutely. The way I discovered the Bitcoin was a bit of a coincidence, actually. Uh, I discovered, actually, cryptocurrencies in 2013. At a time, uh, well, uh, I was the president. I was in Hong Kong and I was uh, I was working at UBS covering the hedge fund industry. And uh, I was uh, I was also the president of the Armenian community of China. And at a time we had just done a new website and my CTO at a time, uh, we offered to pay that uh, website company using Bitcoin. And this is 2013. And he was mining them as of 2011 when they were $30. So that really got my attention. And I really obviously started falling in the rabbit hole. I organized my first Bitcoin event in 2014 at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And I will never forget that I was the, the head of the Financial Services Committee at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. And people complained at CanCham saying, how can you guys have an event about this money laundering topic? And of course, it was 2014 and what things went on and on. And then in 2017, uh, obviously, uh, when I joined PwC, a couple months in, uh, I told them, uh, guys, I really want to start a crypto team, a Bitcoin team. And everybody laughed at me. They said, yeah, good luck with your money laundering uh, uh, gizmo. And of course, it's been obviously success stories since then. Uh, we not only uh, have a team in 20 countries, over hundreds of people. Uh, we it's a multi-million dollar business, uh, but also it's uh, we we, uh, we can now it's a proper the team, a proper business line. And obviously, being a first mover in that space gave us a big advantage from that perspective. So, and I have to say, Walter, as uh, I always say to people, is uh, I'm hooked. You know, whenever you go into crypto. I cannot see myself doing anything else but crypto right now. Uh, it would be so boring. Uh, so, you know, I think this is a, something that you hear from a lot of people in the, the industry. You know, it's interesting. 2020 uh, was really seen as a tipping point for uh, at least institutional interest in crypto. But uh, tell me how the journey began at PwC, because uh, apologies, I, I, I had previously 
uh, believed PwC to be a slightly more conservative, old-fashioned firm. But then I met you, and um, all of my illusions were shattered. Well, it's still uh, it's it's obviously a comment that I get a lot. But the reality is obviously that uh, any of these big professional firms, firms including the all the big four, are slower to move than other organizations. The big difference with a lot of the big four is that we're a partnership. Right. So by de facto being a partnership, uh, you tend to be a bit more entrepreneurial. I have to say what the, one of the biggest misconceptions people have against the big four is that these are actually very entrepreneurial organizations. For, so, for example, when I started decided to launch my crypto team, nobody told me no. Uh, you know, you, but uh, they, let, they actually let me the freedom to do it. And of course, when you become successful, when it generates a lot of revenue, becomes a leader, everybody is, becomes more supportive like any other organization. Uh, but that's how it started. I think one thing we should never forget is that um, the purpose of us at PwC, the purpose is to build trust in society and solve important problems. And I really believe that as the crypto industry matures and as we go from 1.0 to 2.0, the role of the big four will be critical when it comes to solving this issue of trust, which is very ironic because if you think of crypto, the whole idea with Satoshi's white paper in October 2008 was really to create this trustless mechanism where we have the miners, we have different consensus mechanisms. But the reality is to bring it more mainstream, to bring in the next level of institutional investors, we need this trusted kind of intermediaries for a certain amount of time. And, and of course, the big four will get themselves disrupted in a couple of years as well. If we think about the notion of audit, the way audits are performed right now, I mean, it's this completely will be this will be the, the will be extremely different. But I think this is why how the journey started. And now, uh, for example, uh, the, we do a lot of work. For, uh, if we do a lot of work on M&A, fundraising in crypto companies, uh, we help a lot of crypto exchanges, not only on the regular stuff like tax, accounting, but also governance, cybersecurity, penetration testing, uh, valuation models and stuff like that. And also then obviously we do a lot of work on, on, on the regulatory support uh, and, and other strategic work on expansion, how to go to new markets and what is the market landscape. So it's become kind of a good 360 offering. Uh, I always say it's a, it's a New York a watch seller model. Somebody comes to us. Uh, we literally open our jacket and we have pretty much anything they want under the sun and we can offer to them. And that's, I think, one of the big powerful things of this. Business. Henry, a lot of what we cover in Crypto Savvy is looking at kind of the um, more traditional end of town, the the portfolio managers, the investors, the institutions. Uh, what What is the response you're hearing now from those more traditional clients? And what are the questions they're asking you about digital assets? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I started my career as a hedge fund lawyer actually and uh, even uh, so I've spent many years uh, I spent many years in the in the hedge fund world uh, before obviously joining uh, PwC and other entrepreneurial ventures uh, what what has been very remarkable for me is how the shift has happened uh, so I would I, I will remember very distinctly 2016 17 I would meet a lot of hedge fund managers who would actually believe it or many of them would be trading crypto on on a PA side on their personal account because it was not covered by their funds or policies uh, but they would be very reluctant to bring crypto into the main fund because they were worried about the reaction of their existing LPs, their existing institutional investors. Now it's completely the opposite. Uh, literally, especially during the bull market a couple of months ago, and now it's starting again as we as recording. Every other day, I get a message on LinkedIn or on Twitter by one hedge fund manager saying, "Hey, Henry, long time no see. We should catch up for a coffee." 
And the story always is the same. They want to get into crypto. They're wondering how to do it. Uh, and now, you know, this, this is, I think, it's believe it's going to be very mainstream. Today, most of the large hedge funds are already in the crypto space. Uh, many of them are, uh, if they're not into it, they're looking at it. Uh, you know, PwC, we publish every year a crypto hedge fund report. Uh, according to the data that we have as of last uh, December, uh, 46% of crypt- traditional hedge funds, traditional hedge funds, are either invested in crypto or are looking at entering the crypto space. And I think that percentage is just going to increase over the coming months. So I think it's going to be crypto digital assets will just be one other asset class that the hedge funds are trading and institutional investors are trading. And unlike some of the more traditional assets, there's a lot of benefits for these investors. You know, volatility is a pretty good thing if you're trading. Uh, the fact that there's information gaps is actually a good thing if you're a trader. And also the fact that there's a lot of these um, kind of market dislocations Again, gives a lot of the same opportunities for hedge funds as they had in in the fixed income space, as they had in traditional space uh, 20, 30 years ago. And that's why you have it. You're going to see a lot more of these uh, buy side firms look at the space over the next couple of months. But Henry, 46 percent, that's less than half of people polled. Um, your st- talked about some of the uh, information disparities, some of the arbitrage opportunities, and earlier you talked about trust. Uh, What are the barriers holding uh, uh, other big money firms from getting more active in this space? Yeah, excellent question. So actually, we ask this question to institutional investors, and generally there's two, three answers we hear all the time. One of them is regulatory uncertainty. Uh, to be fair, that that question now is being settled, and I would argue pretty much every large financial center, there is some kind of regulatory certainty on crypto. You may not like it, but at least there is some clarity. A uh, second thing, which is probably, in my opinion, the biggest challenge is education. And this is why I spend a lot of my time, I think many of your listeners may know me via my social media videos on LinkedIn, on YouTube, uh, a lot of my books that I publish. I believe there's a massive information gap, educational gap with the leadership of a lot of these organizations, whether they're pension funds, endowments, to even hedge funds. So I think that's where the one education gap is one of the big ones. So this is, I would say, the macro issues. On the micro issue, we're, we're seeing a lot of practical challenges right now. For example, uh, yes, there's challenges on you know uh, things like finding a, a fund administrator. It's actually a big challenge for any hedge fund that wants to come in. Finding a fund administrator that can actually strike a nav on Bitcoin is fine. But when you're looking at Bitcoin derivatives, it's becoming definitely more complicated. Custodians now is pretty much settled. But the other big problem is uh, uh, auditors. How do you find an auditor, a big four who can auditor? I can tell you it's extremely difficult, not because the big four don't like to do it, but because of risk requirements within the big four of onboarding a new client with a new asset class. And then there's, I would say, there's other what I call um, operational challenges. For example, there's been many anecdotal stories of banks that are servicing the traditional hedge funds, prime brokers are traditional servicing these traditional hedge funds who've warned these hedge funds that if they transfer, they, they refuse to transfer money to crypto broker, to crypto exchange. And also there's some practical operational challenges like what we call the, the trading systems. In traditional hedge funds, you have what we call uh, OMS, you have PMS, EMS, execution management system, portfolio management system, systems, uh, order management systems, which are quite advanced which are not yet there when it comes to crypto. So there's all these challenges that are coming into place uh, in, in the space uh, that bring a lot. And there's obviously a whole suite of others. Like one, one example is counterparty risk. Today, for example, if you're a crypto quant fund, uh, you need to leave your assets with the crypto exchanges. But the reality is that these exchanges you can trade on are often unregulated. So from a counterparty risk perspective, how how what is your comfort level to leave, let's say, 15%, 20% of your assets 
at a crypto exchange, a derivative exchange that is unregulated, and by the way, who may be in the news every week because there's some regulatory enforcement actions against them, and by the way, who three, there's a lot of a lot, there's a lot of opacity on who their shareholders are, who, who the founders are, and some of their how they operate uh, under the hood. So all these things are issues from a governance perspective that would raise a lot of what we call operational due diligence uh, challenges for any investor looking at uh, or any fund looking at entering the space. When you first started uh, buying Bitcoin, trading in Bitcoin, uh, a lot of people were saying, um, <laughs> you know, money laundering uh, and the likes. And now we're talking about regulated crypto. Tell me um, where you're seeing some of the world leader, which are some of the world leaders in enacting the right types of regulations? Yeah, it's obviously a very interesting. Being a lawyer at heart, I actually love crypto regulations. I'm, I'm actually a bit of a loser. Uh, I'm a bit of a loser. I read about crypto regulations over weekends. Uh, so uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, there's been actually obviously a lot of um, innovation and a lot of work happening in the crypto regulatory space in the last couple of years. I mean, case in point today, only 5% of regulators do not have somebody working on crypto. This is from according to Cambridge University. Now, uh, different regulators have taken different approaches. Uh, for example, where we are in Hong Kong, uh, and again, uh, for full disclosure, I sit on the SFC's uh, FinTech Advisory Board uh, Council or group, is that there's a lot of the, um, while there's there's some regulatory clarity, uh, this the rules are meant only for professional investors. I mean, the problem is, is when next year these rules come into force, every exchange or broker and, and player in town will get licensed. They, they're only allowed to trade with professional investors. The problem here is that the retail public will want to have access to crypto. You cannot stop uh, millions of people not trading crypto. And if you don't offer them a way to do this in a way that is secure, regulated, and trustworthy, they're going to do it in platforms that are offshore, unregulated, and very opaque. Uh, opaque. And I think this is something that we're going to see over the next couple of months. Unless we change these regulations, that's what's going to happen, especially as some of the reg regulatory requirements are very outdated. For example, in Hong Kong, uh, you, you could, they're going to be only able to trade with professional investors. And the way we define professional investors is somebody that has $8 million in liquid assets. And by the way, these are only cash and securities. The value of a house doesn't count. And also crypto doesn't count. So let's say if I have $100 million equivalent to crypto, I'm a crypto expert, I follow the markets every day and I trade, I'm still not considered a professional investor in crypto and I would not be allowed to trade. So this is one of the challenges we're seeing. Different jurisdictions have taken different approaches. Singapore has taken a bit more retail-friendly approach. Uh, parts of uh, UK, Switzerland, and others have different approaches. I would say today, ironically, the most crypto-friendly nation today in the world a large economy, let's say a G10 economy that is we're seeing in the world, is probably the United States. You and I tomorrow morning can go set up a crypto hedge fund in the US. We need to do a filing with the SEC. It's 45 days, uh, you know, negative uh, notice, very easy. And it's uh, you can set up a crypto business. The rules are pretty clear. And I would say it's ironic because right now, pretty much a lot of the crypto funds, crypto businesses are moving to the US or setting up in the US because it's become one of the easiest places to do business. Uh, when it comes to crypto, Regulations. Again, it's complicated, but relatively speaking, it's actually more accessible and easier than other jurisdictions we're seeing around. Look, and um, just one point of uh, clarity, uh, when you mentioned the professional investor limit of $8 million, that is Hong Kong dollars, which is uh, approximately US $1 million. Yeah, so um, Henry, and also I might just add in the interests of transparency, Hashki Group is in the process of applying for the uh, 
license with the SFC. Um, and we look forward to uh, hopefully being um, a an approved virtual asset service provider here in Hong Kong in the near term. Going back to PwC, tell me how are you finding the talent necessary to advise the clients? Because it would feel like um, uh, getting someone from a non-traditional industry like crypto into a traditional business like PwC might be a challenge. Uh, correct. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And finding talent, I would argue, is one of the biggest challenges we have in the crypto space today. I find there's two kinds of people who want to get into crypto. Either they're, uh, they're, they're very, very young and experienced. They know nothing about finance, but they know crypto. Or they're very experienced and they want to get into crypto space. Uh, the way I've dealt with this problem at PwC is that actually I've been hiring people fresh out of university or other other industries, but where they, they have a clear passion for crypto. For example, for the last couple of years, I stopped looking at CVs. I don't even bother with CVs anymore. I look at the LinkedIn profile. Uh, first of all, I refuse to meet anybody who's not on LinkedIn. For me, if you're not on LinkedIn, it shows you have a lack of understanding of relationships in, 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 the, in, this, in this century. Uh, but uh, the second thing that I do is I look at what kind of real crypto interest. Are these, you know, if have, or do they trade crypto? Do they go to Bitcoin meetups? Uh, are they? Do they take any crypto courses? Uh, and actually, the qu interview questions go. We talk about crypto, different crypto assets. We talk about what they're holding in their portfolio. And this is how I gauge the real interest of, of, of people. For example, some of the most knowledgeable people that we have in our crypto team literally came out of our university. Uh, and this is where often their first job or their first employer. But their level of crypto knowledge is way, way, way more advanced than many others and other uh, that have years of experience. I would argue this is one of the verticals of finance where having 20 years of traditional financial services industry may not necessarily be an advantage. Because often in many cases we see this over and over, they have this old mindset, a way of doing things. I think there's a great, uh, there's a sweet spot where you have a couple of years of traditional financial experience. And you know about institutional offering, what institutional investors want, institutional pair wants, and you saw the open-mindedness, the, the, this agility, this entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset, where you're happy to come into the crypto space. Actually, very similar to you, actually, in many regards, and you're happy to make this jump. And those are, I think, are uh, is are the people who benefit the most. I believe today, anybody that works in finance, you need, you have to take a look at crypto. I often say is. You may not like it. You may love Bitcoin. You may hate it. But I think that this intellectual moral obligation to at least spend the time to understand it, because there's no doubt that this is going to, the crypto is here to stay and it's going to play a pivotal moment, uh, pivotal role in, in the, not only in the future of financial services, but even the professional services firms like PwC uh, who service these organizations. Henry, do you foresee... Um... Uh, some form of shakeout or consolidation in the industry. We're seeing so many companies, so a number of different exchanges around the world. Um, can the uh, crypto sphere support and all of these organizations? Yeah, I mean, and this is uh, for this reason we publish every year at PwC twice a year a crypto M and A and fundraising report, uh, and we track all the M and A activity. And I'm a very big believer, and we're seeing it already. Uh, that 2021 was going to be a record year of crypto M&A. I mean, only the first half year has been surpassed uh, the entire of 2020. Uh, and I think we, we're going to see two kinds of activities. One is the traditional players acquiring uh, crypto players. So, for example, if I'm a bank right now and I want to start offering crypto custody, yes, either I'm going to build it in-house, which we know doesn't work. Uh, second is I'm going to try to partner with some firms, which actually is a very good option in many cases. Or if I'm, I'm cash rich, I'm going to go acquire a player who's into the space. I think that's one option we'll see a lot. But also, I think we'll see some the large crypto players who are cash rich, 
will acquire other businesses that are ancillary to theirs. I call these often that we're gonna, we may see these crypto unicorns become crypto octopuses, where maybe it's a large crypto exchange, but they go acquire a crypto data company, they go acquire other crypto compliance company, they go acquire another crypto, um, you know, uh, retail friendly uh, uh, company. So there's a lot of this, I think we'll see a lot of these companies become where they're very uh, strong vertically, also now become uh, strong horizontally. So I, I'm very, very bullish on the space of the crypto money and acquisition. I think that will drive naturally a lot of consolidation in the sector, which is, I think, a very healthy for the industry. Now, uh, in December last year, you made uh, 10 uh, crypto predictions for 2021, and one of uh, which is the increased uh, breakthrough and adoption of DeFi, um, uh, decentralized finance. Uh, tell us about your passion for that subject and why you foresee that as being one of the breakout trends this year. It's interesting you mentioned that, and I think there's a, a lot of people follow my yearly predictions, and you're right, last year I predict, predicted DeFi will have a big year. I have to say that I completely underestimated how big of a year it would have. I mean, just to put things in perspective, in, in, uh, in, in Jan 1, 2020, uh, the total value lock in DeFi was less than a billion dollars. And now as, as the time of recording, it's over 65 billion, if not 70 billion. So obviously it's, it's grown tremendously the last couple, uh, couple of months. I have to say the one thing that has surprised me the most and that I did not foresee either was how much institutional investors would get involved in DeFi. I was a very warm believer that actually the crypto industry, geeks, people like us who are very into crypto, would play around with DeFi. I did not expect that this number of traditional hedge funds, institutional investors who are very seriously looking either at DeFi tokens and now their mechanisms, but also some of the platforms as well. And I have to say, the um, when I take a step back, and I'm, I'm actually working now on my next book on the future of money, is if you think about DeFi, what is super exciting is that not only obviously there's a lot of its features, like it's permissionless and it really allows you to innovate, but uh, it really allows us to have a first principle approach to financial services. Rethink how we can deliver financial services offerings, especially with the, one of the core features of DeFi, which is that we call financial Lego, which is this composability that I can take any DeFi application, mismatch it with another or any, any DeFi product and put them together, literally like, like financial Legos. And that is, becomes very, very powerful. And um, I think there's some headwinds over the next couple of months when it comes to DeFi. I think there's, there's some regulatory uncertainty, how regulators are going to deal with it. Uh, I actually think some of the recent events, like the big hacks that we saw, are actually positive for the industry because they can actually put in place more governance. Uh, and sure, there's a bit more uh, uh, smart contract audits and the likes. Uh, but I remain, again, very, very bullish uh, on, the, on the DeFi industry overall. And we, we, I don't think we know now how the industry will look like two, three years from now uh, because the changes are happening so quickly. Henry, what is it that got that motivated you to begin your YouTube channel with the crypto capsules, your LinkedIn newsletter on the future of money? I mean, you're a social media influencer on uh, digital assets. How did that um, get started? And tell me about the energy it takes to maintain that. Well, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a very good uh, question. So I started my social media videos uh, actually four years ago. And actually, in a couple of weeks, I'll be releasing my 100th episode when I look back at my first videos. And there's some surprises we have in, in store there. Uh, but uh, really, the way it started was a lot of people were, were telling me, Henry, I just want to know the, the what is happening in crypto. But of course, people like us, Walter and myself, like we're into crypto. We, we're happy to spend hours reading about it. But a lot of people don't have that time. So my idea at the time was set up the crypto capsule, which was a 60-second uh, and give to people what they need to know that week. And actually, the way it started, my bet is that it needs, I need to deliver to people the content they need to know 
in the time it takes them to go in a typical Hong Kong elevator to their office. And that's how the model started. I have to say, I got a lot of pushback initially. Even though we were talking before PwC, at the time I went to PwC, I said, I want this idea. They said, oh, we don't believe in short form social media content marketing. I remember I met a guy at a time who was telling me that CEOs only want to read 25 page in-depth reports. And honestly, I don't know any CEO has time to do that. So I actually started on my own. Uh, my first videos, I would film them on my iPhone. My, my, my helper at home filmed my first one. Um, so it was very, very, my sister used to do my editing. And that's how this started. The first years were very difficult. Uh, I would not lie. You know, the first, anybody starts producing content uh, because it takes some time before you get traction. It takes about a one or two years. And those are very lonely because you work all weekend, you put something out and nobody watches it. And I continue, I persevered, I persevered. And now obviously it's been obviously very successful. Uh, I have obviously half a million people who follow my content, my crypto capsule every week. Uh, my newsletter that was launched only a couple months ago has over 40,000 followers and it's growing 20% month on month. Um, and, uh, and, and, the, uh, and also YouTube, as you mentioned, now uh, my content now is available not only in English, uh, but also in French, Arabic, Chinese, and, and Spanish. And that's one of the goals we have. My goal is really to empower people with this educational content. I think all of us, we have kind of this moral duty. Obviously, we're in businesses and we're here to actually make money for our organizations or for ourselves. But also, I think we have this moral duty to ensure that people understand what it is. And this is why actually, I write my book. I spend my entire holidays literally working on my next, uh, my next book. And uh, it takes, obviously, hours of hours. You know, uh, it's weekend time. It's time away from my kids. It's time away from my, uh, my wife. Uh, but I think it's sacrifices that you need to make. But I also believe this is what is required uh, on it. I think a lot of people now want to become social media influencers, uh, want to have a, want to do this. The problem, I think many, not many people don't realize the time it takes to do this. Um, so you mentioned time. My 60-second video takes about six hours every week. Uh, my newsletter that goes out it takes about 10 to 12 hours every week. Uh, so that's my Friday night. Actually, my, um, uh, as we're recording, it's a Friday. My Friday night will be spent on, on amending it. Tomorrow, about from 9 a.m. to about 4 or 5 p.m., I'll be working on my newsletter. Uh, this is unfortunate. This, this is a sacrifice that I'm, I don't see my kids growing up. I don't see it, but I think it's the cost to play it out. I, I, have, I have other videos where I talk about this where I really believe in, I don't believe in work-life balance. I do not believe that, uh, and this is, I know, very controversial. Even it goes against the PwC messaging that we give to our, to our staff is I believe that if you want to be successful in your company, yes, you can have work-life balance, you'll do very well. But if you want to be number one in your industry, you want to be number one in the world in what you're doing, whether it's you're being on LinkedIn, whether it's social media, which are on podcasts, whether it's your professional services, uh, there's no work-life balance. You need, to, you need to get, it's an extra 10% that you give that it gives you the extra 30, 40%. And I call that immigrant mindset. It's something that I've had for many years and that's how we'll continue doing. So um, again, for people interested in how I do my podcast, I have videos on YouTube of how I film my videos, I even how I prepare for my keynotes, I have videos, it's all behind the scenes. And I'll be publishing even one uh, soon on how, I, how I, I moderate even my panel. So there's a whole videos on how behind the scenes, how I do these things. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, earlier before being joining Hashkey Group, I was at Huawei and I started a program, International KOL Relations, which was working with social media influencers around the world. And I could not believe how much time they spend giving back to their audience and engaging with the audience and listening to them and talking to them and answering every question. It's a, it, it really is a, a calling. Yeah. And then you're right, because that's the key word you just mentioned is listening to your audience, right? And giving value to them. Because the problem is I see many people want to create content on social media, but they, they do not, they think about their own promotional material, right? Here, the real su success is to think about their audience. Like my, my view is always, if somebody's listening to this podcast, for example, for half an hour, 
Are we giving them value? Are we, they're giving half an hour of their lives to us. Are we giving them value for that? For example, my keynotes, I will always rehearse my keynotes. Every single speech that I give anywhere in the world is tailored for that audience, right? Uh, and that is actually is one of the most critical, critical things uh, to do. Uh, and I think unless you're happy to really care about your audience, uh, it's, it's not going to work. And I think this is one of the biggest things with social media is that we need to make the content exciting. I always say that my crypto content is not competing with articles on the mass media. It's competing with Instagram videos, Facebook videos, TikTok videos. I'm actually just launching my TikTok channel a couple of weeks as well. So it's how we actually are able to cater to our audience and make these things actually uh, uh, that are relatable to the audience is very, very tricky. But that's why uh, it, if you do it well, you can be very serious. And now it's a business. I mean, to give you an idea, I have nine people that work for me. I have a company that called Arsalini Media Group that only handle on my social media, my speaking gigs, my content sponsorships, just because it's become a business on it. And thankfully, by the way, we have a lot of good sponsors now as well that allow us to actually create this education, educational content from that regard. Fantastic. Well, um, the one thing you can't fake is passion, and we've certainly seen that in every one of your videos. Uh, Henry, we talked about delivering it to your audience, and we're going to wrap up here, but um, I can't let you go without one or two views looking forward. Uh, we're now in August 2021, and what are the trends that you're looking at for the remainder of oh, this year? Always a tough question. I would say what I'm the two things that I'm watching uh, for the remainder of the year. One is what's happening in crypto markets. There's a lot of momentum right now. I would not be surprised if we go into another bull market. Uh, there's a lot of capital coming in from the buy side, from hedge funds, asset managers, uh, retail investors even entering the space. So I would not be surprised to see. Uh, the big question is what is a I know today crypto has a market cap of two trillion. Where would it be in December 31st? What would be the price of Bitcoin? That'll be very interesting to see. We ask actually our crypto hedge fund clients this year. And the, the average prediction for December 31st is 100,000 US dollars. So that's the one thing I'm watching right now. A second thing that I'm watching uh, very, very closely is what's happening on a topic we didn't have a chance to talk about today, but the CBDC, central bank digital currencies, a lot of activity in that space, especially in China. Uh, it's not, let's not forget the Olympics are coming up in Q1 of 2022 uh, in really a couple of months. And I think it's very likely we'll see a ECNY, digital retail CBDC in China, uh, being used by then. I think that's incredibly exciting. I mean, you know, there's today there's two kinds of central bank money. It's cash and there's reserves that the bank holds at the central bank. We are the lucky generation who's going to see the appearance of a third form of central bank money. And I think from a, that's, that's pretty exciting and we're pretty lucky to be the generation who's going to see that happening. So very exciting. I remain very bullish on the crypto markets. Uh, and I, I know my only thing I tell to people is, like I mentioned before, you may like Bitcoin, you may hate it, you may love it. At least if there's one piece of advice I have, spend that half an hour a week just to read on what's happening in crypto. Trust me, it can come in very handy. With your activity on social media, what is the, what's the kind of number one question you get the most from your fan base and your audience? What's the most uh, common question you get? Well, it's, it really depends. I would say there's two, three types of questions that I get a lot. One of them, unfortunately, are people asking me whether they're getting scammed. Unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, uh, the people go on dodgy exchanges right now, and they're actually that's one thing they're getting is a lot of uh, scams are they're taking place right now. The big, most common one is uh, companies asking them to prepay their taxes uh, or asking them to get remote access to their computers. And I get at least now two, three people a day contacting me, and and, and unfortunately, I have to tell them the bad news that they're getting scammed. Uh, second uh, thing that I get a lot is uh, people want to know uh, where they can learn about crypto. So I, I, that's a very good question. The educational side, often that uh, I do selfishly, I will obviously send a lot of my links to my content, but also books and and and, uh, and my newsletter and stuff like that. Uh, number three, which is maybe surprising, 
is the career advice. So this is very common. I get it from uh, either people who are more experienced or young people generally who want to work into crypto. And the one advice I give to them, if you want to work into crypto, you really just need to show your passion in the space. For example, many crypto companies, if you show them that you wrote a blog about it, you wrote a LinkedIn article about crypto, you took some crypto classes, you can reach out to their CEO directly. In many cases, their emails are available. And the one criteria people want to see is passion. Personally, I'd never hire anybody who's not passionate about crypto, who's happy to talk on a Saturday night about crypto with me. Those are the kinds of people you're looking to hire. And that is often the kind of uh, people I think a lot of the advice that I give to a lot of the, um, the, the, the young people coming in. Uh, unfortunately, I don't give any financial advice. There's a lot of those as well. People want to say, hey, what coin should I buy? What coin should I do that? Um, those never, never ends up, uh, there's never, never, never a happy outcome to those questions. You know, um, uh, I, I tell many that the, um, the planes uh, of the prairie are littered with the graves of the pioneers. And I, I feel in many instances, we'll look back on these years and say, I can't believe there was ever, uh, you know, resistance to digital assets and the digitization of the finance industry. Um, uh, I, I have a 17 year old. I tell him his grandkids will laugh and say, my granddad's so old, he used to use cash. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and even more than that, I would say the concept of what we have of David banking, how we know it, the idea of cash, like you mentioned, the ATMs, I think it's going to be very, very different, uh, you know, about how we, we interact not only with finance and money, but also among ourselves, our notion of what is money will be very, very different. Actually, it's one of the topics I'll talk about in my, in my next book, The Future of Money. I think these things will be very, very different on that side. So thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure uh, being on. Again, for a lot of people who want to keep in touch with me, uh, you know, obviously the best way to keep in touch with me is my, my LinkedIn, uh, also my Twitter. It's all my name. It's Henry, what I, Arslanian, and also my uh, various uh, YouTube pages in various languages. And of course, those of you interested in my newsletter, again, accessible via LinkedIn, The Future of Money. Very happy to be on. And thank you. Thank you, thank you for actually creating this podcast and allowing to share the knowledge of crypto with, with your audience. Thank you. Well, you've been a fantastic guest. And for those who are not connected with Henry, you'll find his contact details down in the show notes. And we appreciate your time. And thanks for joining us today on Crypto Savvy. I hope that after today's episode, you've learned more about the passion it takes to be a successful crypto influencer. Thank you to Henry Arslanian for that fantastic overview. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating as it helps others to find us. I'm Walter Jennings, and this was Crypto Savvy from the Hashkey Group. Thank you for listening to Crypto Savvy, the podcast that delivers the essentials brought to you by Hashkey Group. 